Hello, TIFO Football Podcast listeners. I am Josh Schneider-Weiler, host of TIFO's This Football Life Podcast, and today I'll be hosting this bonus episode. Don't worry, Joe and Alex will be back with you on Monday. Today, we are joined by journalist Tom Williams, whose work you can regularly read in Bleacher Report and AFP. He is the author of the new book, Do You Speak Football? A Glossary of Football Words and Phrases from Around the World which you can buy in bookstores and on Amazon starting today. In this episode, we chat about the new book and focus on how the language of football has evolved in countries around the world. You'll hear Tom explain why Germans love to use the word gherkin, who is football's William Shakespeare, and which country has a similar football lexicon to England. And most importantly, you'll learn lots of new terms like cholismo and schwammkampf, that you can impress your friends with. If you want to continue the conversation on this subject, go on Twitter and use the hashtag, do you speak football? Uh, So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with writer Tom Williams. I'm here with Tom Williams, uh, author of the book, Do You Speak Football? Tom, how are you doing today? Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. We're in in a beautiful place, Finsbury Park. It's about to be springtime. No complaints here. What could be better? Exactly. Um, so you just wrote this book and you were telling me it's an 18-month process. It's out into the world. Uh, let's start with a super easy question. What's something you learned writing the book? Something I learned. Um, I learned so much. I mean, this was, this was the great joy of writing the book was that I was writing about all sorts of football cultures that I knew very little about. Um, and even the football cultures that I thought I knew something about Italy or Brazil, Argentina, you're still discovering things. And I think from a personal perspective, one of the joys of the book was the relationships that I formed with the various contributors who were helping me out. And basically, the way I sort of got, got into the book, the way I went about researching it was by establishing a, a network of contributors in all the different countries that I wanted to write about. Um, and Which is like over like 150 or something. I mean, it, yeah, it feels I think, like... I think, there's about, I think there's about 90 countries okay. in the book. It feels um, like almost all of them you know, yeah. when you read it. I mean, the idea, the initial idea for the book was that it was going to be a chapter on each of the major football nations and then a sort of best of the rest where we just throw... Honestly, that's what I thought when I, when I picked it up. Yeah, yeah. And then as... As I got into the research process and I was finding so much interesting football vocabulary from beyond the traditional major nations, I thought, actually, well, we could probably open this up and, ju- and just and try and do a, a global football glossary, which is what it's ended up being. I mean, I might have overstretched a little bit to try and get there, but I, th- I think hopefully what the book will show is... is something from from every nation with any kind of football history um and yeah and for me personally as 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 someone who both as someone who writes about football for a living but also as someone who just loves football as a fan it's been fascinating finding out about all these different all these different phrases from different countries yeah i mean it goes from romania to costa rica i'm assuming you don't speak all of the languages so uh, what languages do you speak yeah well so this this was this was one of the big challenges so i clearly i speak english i speak french i speak a little bit of portuguese and i studied welsh at high school until the age of 16 I wouldn't make any claims for the quality of my Welsh. So I was writing about a lot of languages that I didn't speak. And whereas some of the Latin languages I'm able to kind of follow, thanks to the French and the little bit of Portuguese that I speak, there's an awful, lang- uh, lo- an awful lot of languages that I, that I can't follow. So I've been very dependent on um, the, the assistance that I've had from people who do speak those languages, sort of guiding me through them and, and, and showing me, you know, showing me the interesting vocab. Yeah, so you were like, okay, I'm going to go to uh, Panama and I, you know, I need my pa- Panamanian expert and you just like, you know, Google like top um, football writers at, at Panama. Yeah, and then yeah, basically. Boom. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I would, um, you know, I'd find an article written by someone on a, a particular country or a particular team. And I think, okay, well, this, this person obviously knows their stuff. You know, can I get in touch with them? Um, and, yeah, sometimes it was a case of just sort of going on Twitter and finding who is, who is tweeting about Panamanian football, who is tweeting about Turkish football, whatever, getting in touch with them and explaining the concept of the book um, and 
hoping that they kind of got it, that they were in some way infused by it, and also that they were in a position to help because sometimes, um, you know, people... Uh, I mean, everyone who I got in touch with was helpful, you know, tried to be helpful in some way, but sometimes there were people who weren't really able to, um, you know, kind of explain the sort of things that I was looking for. So it'd be a case of kind of trial and error and then, you know, see if I can find someone else from that country as well. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it was, quite a, it was quite a long process. Well, I mean, you know, football, there's so many diehard football fans for each country that you can always find just teams and teams of, of people. But uh, which country, you know, n- now looking back on it, you know, sticks out as some of the interesting ones that you, like, you called someone or you emailed someone and you're like, wow, like, you know, I, I knew it would be interesting, but, like, man, I had no idea it was, like, going to be this. I mean, that happened a lot. That happened an awful lot. And what would happen during the process often was that I would email someone introducing myself, explaining the concept of the book and asking whether they had any ideas or any pointers. And then I'd get an email reply. And sometimes that email reply would just open this whole world of vocabulary from a country. Uh, and that was really exciting. And, you know, that happened quite a lot um, I remember there's a guy, Costas uh, Bratsos, who uh, covers uh, Greek football, and he helped me with some of the vocab on uh, football in Greece. And he came up with so many suggestions, and they were fantastic. And I, I had a really difficult time whittling down um, all the stuff that he came up with because it was so strong um, and because it, it all matched the brief so well. Um, and I, I tried to limit myself to a set number of terms for each country but there were there were quite a few instances where I, I really found it quite difficult to respect those limits that I'd set myself yeah. just because there was so much good material yeah well I mean since you mentioned it are there any that uh, stick to uh, you know c- come to mind that you couldn't think uh, that didn't make it into the book that you maybe in retrospect wish had or that you know if there was ever a part two that would be in there um I mean to be honest, there's, there's nothing that I had to leave out of the book because of space restrictions that I really kind of um, agonized over. Like at some point, you just, you just get to a point where it's like, okay, well, this is what it's going to have to be. And there has to be a line and the line yeah. is there. This yeah. is what we use. We have this to move what, on. This is what like, we leave yeah. aside. But what's been funny has been since I announced that the book was coming out um, on social media, I've had people get in touch to say, oh, have you got you know this phrase from wherever or this phrase? And there've been a couple of times where someone suggested some great phrase, and I haven't is, 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 hadn't like, come across it, and it's not in the book. And uh, like what? Like what's one for example? There was one. There was an Italian one, and I mean, if if any country in the book was deserving of a, a book dedicated purely to its own football language, it would be Italy. I just think the depth, the richness of Italy's football vocabulary is is basically unparalleled, and someone flagged something up this is after I'd announced that the book was coming out on Twitter and it was an Italian term for a means of controlling the ball in a way that brings it under your control but keeps a certain degree of pace in the ball so it, it sort of that, sets you up for whatever's coming that's next. That's so specific. But so specific. And beautiful, like Italian yeah. football is just full of things like that. There's, a, there's a, an equivalent term in French, which is un contrôle orienté, like an orientated control, which is basically you bring the ball under control and, and in the same movement, you're setting it up. You're getting it out of your feet for the pass, the shot, the cross that follows, the sort of thing that Zinedine Zidane was an absolute master at. Um, but I'd not come across this in Italian and... When I started off researching a book, I used, to, I used to think about how I'd feel getting to this point and having people come to me and say, oh, by the way, you didn't have this phrase from Timbuktu or wherever, and how that would make me feel. But, but I, I quickly realized when I was researching the book that that was inevitable. Yeah. And you were never going to get every single one. Yeah, yeah. and like I, I don't want this book to be seen as a definitive yeah. Um, collection of football language. It is the football vocabulary that I happen to find during the research, which was as exhaustive as it could have been. But even with that, you know, there are there are 
inevitable boundaries to how much you can include and how much stuff you can find. Um, and I mean, I'm sure I'm going to come across all sorts of material that that could go into a, a second book. So yeah, yeah, maybe there'll be scope for yeah, that. Well, you got to you got to keep it open for the for the second one, right? Um, what you know, you we, you mentioned how Italian has so many different words, and obviously English has an incredible amount. All the people listening to this or watching this will all uh, hopefully or I imagine speak English. Um, how would you compare the English lexicon um, to some of those? I mean, because we always think the stereotype, at least, is that, you know, French, Italian, all these languages are a bit a, a little bit more poetic. At least I'm, that's the general American stereotype is they're a little bit more poetic. Is, is that true? And um, did I, you find that the case? I used to think the same thing. And then when you actually look at the vocabulary of, of British football specifically... There's a huge amount of poetry there. There are so many metaphors and idioms, and because we've all grown up using them and hearing them, you forget how colourful they are. Um, even things like, you know, a manager whose squad has been ravaged by injury, and you'll say that his squad is down to the bare bones. What a kind of, you know, yeah. almost kind of Dickensian image. It's a beautiful image, that metaphor is, you know, right there, and yeah. And stuff like that throughout... Um, the language of, of, of British football. Um, I, think, I think one area where Britain falls behind some of the Latin countries is when it comes to technical football language. And again, this is something that I mention in the book. And I think part of it comes from the fact that as, as the inventors of the sport, or as the inventors of the modern sport, there wasn't the same desire to go around naming things. And, you know, Britain presented football to the world if you like and and along with that came all the linguistic foundations um so you know offside goal kick goal and and these are words that have been taken throughout the world um and and that form the basis for so many I, football they got the, the the name of the sport right too football yeah, exactly. i know because it, it's which, not always which, called that in every other country like i mm. think foot target is one of them um, yes so it's like it's, Croatia, you know could you imagine if that was what we were all calling football is foot target it just doesn't yeah yeah doesn't yeah, yeah. doesn't work as well um, but I think that one thing you you don't find in in, in British English is is um, the technical detail you get in in some of the some of the Latin languages um, and there's an example that always comes to my mind when I think about this it's the piece of skill that involves a player knocking the ball past his opponent on one side and then running around him to collect it on the other side. One of the simplest uh, and most enduring skill moves that there is, you see it in almost every football match you see, and it's never been named and in, it's such English. a pain in the ass to say too. Yeah. Like and what? the only and the quickest way to describe it is is by saying, "Oh, he knocked it past him on one side and he collected it on the other." Yeah. Whereas in France, that is a grand pont, a big bridge, and it's sort of the the sister term of petit pont, little bridge, which is a nutmeg. In Spanish, it's an auto pass, like a self pass. In uh, Brazilian Portuguese, uh, and I think actually in in, in, in Portuguese uh, from Portugal, it's a dribble de vaca, a cow dribble. Wow. Yeah. Um, so all these other countries saw that there was this skill move and thought, mm. well, that needs a name because it keeps happening all the time, and we'll need to know how to refer to it. Whereas in in English, we never, you know, we never got there. And I, I did find that quite a lot. Um, also, when you, you look at the way that um, positions are, are broken down and again um, obvious point of comparison with Italy which is really the, the home of the very specific tactical delineation in terms of you know the, the different kinds of role within say defenders midfielders forwards so many different names for all the different types of midfielder or defender you might find whereas in in the UK, we've never really gone in for that, and it's only really been the last ten years or so. And I think with the, with you know with the advent of the internet and then social media, that's fueled it that people have started to look to foreign football cultures and to appropriate some of that terminology, recognizing that it just doesn't exist in English. Yeah, no, I, I actually wanted to get into that is and how some of these uh, how some of this language came about, like where it originated. Because uh, uh, there's a lot of different um, places where it comes from. I mean, in each country, you know, sometimes it'll come from a player. 
Uh, sometimes it'll come from a famous broadcaster. So who are some like famous, uh, I don't want to say pioneers, but like who's, who's like the William Shakespeare of uh, some of these countries that are setting the, the language, uh, you know, direction? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the really enjoyable elements of researching the book with the moments when you could pinpoint with 100% accuracy where a particular term came from. And that happened quite a lot in uh, Italy thanks in large part to Gianni Brera, the great man of letters of Italian football. Um, he was editor-in-chief of La Gazzetta dello Sport, amongst other things. And I mean, can he you was a novelist, give like a time essays. period? What, what are we talking so about? So this was, he, he became the editor-in-chief of uh, La Gazzetta in 1949. His career sort of spanned 50s, 60s, uh, 70s as well, I think. Um, and he was responsible for basically creating Italy's modern football lexicon um, and there, was, there were two strands to it if you like. One strand was his desire to map out the divisions of labour on the football pitch as precisely as possible so it wasn't just um, you know, fullbacks, centre-backs, midfielders, forwards it was different names for those things. There are things like, um, I mean, he was the man that coined the term libero for the yeah. sweeper. Um, and it's thanks to him in large part that Italian football has such a variety of different terms for different positions. And then on the other hand, he was great at coming up with nicknames. He gave nicknames to all sorts of different people. One that I mentioned in the book is um, the name that he gave to Gianni Rivera, the great AC Milan playmaker, who he wasn't very impressed by, and who he dubbed Labatino, the little monk, yeah. which basically meant, okay, obviously this guy's quite talented, but you know he sort of wanders around looking nice, doesn't really get stuck. It's a in. brilliant nickname. Yeah, and it and it stuck, and it, and it dogged Rivera for a lot of his career, and and that then became um, a name that would be attributed to. A player with similar characteristics and like you know everyone recognizes the, the talented number 10 who has an eye for a, a killer through ball but who doesn't really ever put a tackle in or break sweat yeah. um, and there was there's another great Brera nickname Euclideo after Euclid the, the great Greek mathematician yeah. and that was for someone who moved around the pitch in a very precise way calculating calculating yeah. and problem solving and I think I think Fabio Capello when he was a player was one of the people who was given that nickname by Brera, um, and and his his influence continues to be felt. So um, I, I think if you, if you're looking for someone who has really um, shaped a country's football vocabulary, it would be it would be Brera in Italy. I feel like we don't get as good nicknames. Maybe this is just like you know recency bias, but I feel like we don't get as good nicknames now as as we used to back in the day. Like. I mean, if you just look at, like, kind of the top five footballers right now, like, you know, Ronaldo, Neymar, uh, Messi, and, you know, like, Suarez, like, do they, any of them have really good nicknames? I no, guess, not I mean, really. Messi is, like, the little flea, but then he doesn't, but you, it's not, you don't it's, hear it's, that all that much. If it was that good, yeah. that's what we would all just that's call what, him. That's what we'd call him, yeah. And I guess Ronaldo is CR7, but then no one, yeah. you know, with any self-respect. Can, can utter that. No, with, I think he like coined that face. himself. Anyway. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's certainly, I, yeah. I don't think there's as much poetry in modern footballer nicknames. Yeah. Um, but you know, you get you get the odd exception. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, I want to get into some of uh, specific uh, countries and, and quotes from the book, which uh, I found uh, tremendously interesting. I'm going to read a quote about um, about Germany, uh, which was uh, one of the uh, most interesting countries, in my opinion, in, in the book. Um, the, the quote is, the renaissance that followed, culminating in the victory at the 2014 World Cup, was language-led. A massive drive to improve coaching standards created a new, sophisticated linguistic landscape that would liberate German football from the tactical straitjacket that had pre previously constrained it. Uh, that's a, a little bit of a mouthful, but I mean, the, the, sen the first sentence was most striking. You saying it was language-led. Uh, so can you be a little bit more you know, specific or elaborate on what you mean by that? I mean, Germany is a really interesting example. Um, and 
although I'm here to plug my book, the definitive book on, on this topic is Raphael Honigstein's Das Reboot, which is all about how German football, realising the extent to which it had fallen off the pace, pulled itself up by its bootstraps and reconquered the world. And it's around the, turn, the, the last turn of the century, um, Germany had had this catastrophic uh, group stage exit at Euro 2000. And although Germany had always been successful internationally, it was quite um, stagnant uh, tactically. Uh, the country was wedded to uh, back three defensive system to man marking um, and all the other tactical uh, developments that were going on elsewhere weren't really being taken up in Germany and there was a real drive from within the German Football Federation to do something about this and the emphasis was placed very firmly on the education of Germany's coaches and there was a real drive to try and raise the level of sophistication in the way that tactical concepts were taught and discussed um, and then the next phase of that was finding coaches like Jurgen Klopp, for example, who had the necessary intelligence and confidence to take those concepts from the pages of the coaching manuals, apply them on the training pitch and then in matches, and then talk about them. and, and, and So verbalize and, and pass that along to other coaches because, you know, it was so, in the grassroots, was it was so important. Yeah. Is that where you, where yeah. you mean? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, that's, that's how we've, that's how phrases like uh, Gagan pressing have entered the, the, the global football lexicon. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting when you look at Germany's football lexicon as a whole because it strikes me in many ways as being quite similar to Britain's football lexicon in that there's this, there's a lot of humour, um, yeah. there's an awful lot of colour um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of mischief even and there's a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, the, the physicality in the sport, on the importance of, uh, you know, duels. There's this great German term, Zweikampf, meaning duel, and it's been measured... Uh, in German football for years, and it's seen as this key metric, the Zweikampf, and it's basically a Zweikampf is like a one-on-one -on -one duel between two direct opponents. And um, statistics for Zweikampf are collected every season, um, and then at the end of each season you can see which players won the most duels, etc. Um, and so, in in Germany's modern uh, football lexicon, you have terms like Zweikampf, which are almost sort of relics yeah. from the, well, from the time before. You tell that story in the book. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm blanking on who the player was that was like, I think after a loss, and they were just yes. like, we need more. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bishanti Lizarazu, yeah. when he was playing for Bayern Munich, um, I forget which season it was now, but it was the early 2000s. Like 2001, 2002. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. And Bayern had made a really impressive start to the season everyone was really excited about the sort of football they were playing and there was talk about um, them sort of entering into like a new age almost in terms of the style of their football. And then they went out in the Champions League group stage, which obviously for a club of Bayern standing is a disaster. Uh, and there was this great quote from Vicente Lizarazu, who spent several years at Bayern Munich, never, was never really comfortable speaking German to the media um, and so would often give interviews in, you know, in English, uh, and he came out with this quote, something along the lines of, you, you have to forget about stylish football, you have to win Zweikampf. Yeah. And, that, and that's like the literal quote. Uh, and that kind of sums up that German attitude to the importance of getting the better of your direct opponent on the pitch. Yeah. Um, and I think, you, I think you get that a lot in, in Britain's football yeah. language, well, the, the, the idea that it's all about you know, language the 50 Language can, can shape an attitude or it can reflect it, mm. and which is, I think, what you're getting at. But I, I do want to... We can't talk about Germany and not get into at least one or two of the, the comical um, bits about German language. Uh, they have a, a, a couple... Uh, instances they referred to gherkins or pickles for us Americans um, in their language. Gherkin passes and uh, what, what is their fascination with uh, gherkins and p 
goals. So yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> cucumbers or, or or you know gherkins or whatever yeah. they uh, crop up quite a lot. You've got gherkin pass, which is a bad pass. Yeah. Um, gherkin troop, like a, yeah. a cucumber troop, is like a like a bad team, like yeah. a poorly performing team. Um, I think gegurka is another one which means like cucumbering around and that's, yeah. you know, if someone's sort of messing around. And I'm not entirely sure yeah. where that comes from. The only thing I found was that the, the word itself, gurkha, meaning cucumber, it comes from, uh, the stem of the word is from a Middle Greek word, agovros, uh, which means unripe or immature. So there's something in the stem of that word that suggests immaturity, you know, not quite being at the required level, shall we say. Interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, yeah, beyond that, I've, I've not, I've not come across any better explanations. Of all of the things in the book, that, that was the, just the funniest th- thing to me. And, like, I, I kind of want to, like, start using, you know, those terms in, in English. Like, mm. that was a cucumber pass. Yeah, or, yeah. like, that was a pickle pass. Yeah. That was especially pickle pass you know the alliteration oh yeah, yeah it's quite yeah. pleasing yeah you know it's that I thought that was pretty uh, interesting and then the, uh, there, one, one more quote um, uh, if there was a world cup for talking a good game the Dutch would win at a canter uh, can you explain why I think this is the legacy of Johan Cruyff above all when Holland became a football power in the 1970s everything was led by Ajax and then the Dutch national team and as a result everything was led by Cruyff and Cruyff more than any great footballer um, in the history of the game was associated with his ability to talk about football to um, articulate a vision for what football should look like and that has provided the basis for the way that Holland as a country has thought about football ever since. Um, and I just think you find with, with Dutch coaches, with Dutch players, there is this idea that football should be played in a certain way. And it, Holland isn't alone in, in having a football culture that is like that, that insists on you know, good football. But you, there's... I feel like there's more room for pragmatism in some of the other football cultures yeah. that, that are comparable, whereas it, I think the, the Dutch, and I'm aware that this is quite a big generalisation, but the, this, uh, this notion that there is a Dutch way of playing, um, that's been there for a long time, and it's, it's, it's the 4-3-3 formation, it's the insistence on controlling possession, manipulating space, having the wingers wide... Um, a certain degree of tactical um, universality where, where players can sort of move around. And, yeah, that, and that, that comes across, I think, in, in Holland's football vocabulary, that idea that there is a, a Dutch way, and that is the, the only way. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a, a quote from Cruyff about the importance of winning with style and how basically... You know, if you're not going to win with style, you, there's almost no point, yeah. uh, which which flies in the face of so many other football cultures, but is sums up br- brilliantly and, and very succinctly how the Dutch approach football. Yeah. Which is, uh, although which is interesting because the last time they were in the final of a World Cup, 2010, they played most un- undecidedly not Dutch. Mm. You know, anti-football. Um, some would say, and, yeah. and, uh, and even Johan Cruyff yeah. said that he was supporting yeah. Spain basically yeah. because and, th- and that was the, the great irony of that final was that you had Holland against Spain and yet Spain the Spanish team with all their Barcelona players and their tiki-taka football they represented the legacy of Cruyff and the Dutch way of playing whereas the Dutch team represented something quite different and I, I've written this in the book but I think of all the major defeats that the Dutch have have um, succumbed to in international football I think that was the one that was the least painful because in a way it was almost a rejection of that style of football that very un-Dutch very attritional like aggressive kind of football Um, whereas you know when they lost in the finals in 74 78 
that was they the lost true their Dutch way. Football. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they and they went out, um, yeah, honourably playing mm. the way that they wanted to play, the way that they felt that they should play. Yeah, well, I found it interesting, you know, while we're on uh, anti-football, because um, one of the first um, terms in the book is anti-football, or it might be like the first one, uh, with Argentina. And, you know, they talk about anti-football, and then, you know, in each, each word you have is if there's something similar, they, you know, you reference like, oh, this is a similar word in, uh, in Czechoslovakia, or, you know, in the Czech Republic, or in whatever. Um, and for that one, anti-football, you had a couple interesting terms. Um, let me just get them out here. Anyway, you had uh, uh, park the bus in, in English, of course, and then you had cholismo in, mm. uh, in Spain, and then uh, catenaccio in Italian. And, you know, what struck me about that is that here you have the same terms, but with decidedly different connotations in each language. You know, park the bus in English is not a, a, a term of endearment, but to many uh, in those other countries, cholismo, you know, in Spain was, mm. uh, which I, I found very interesting. Uh, you know, why do you think that is? And uh, did, did you notice that as well? Yeah, I mean, those, those terms have been grouped together quite loosely. The idea is that um, if there is a term in the book that has related terms elsewhere, those have been flagged up so you can yeah. kind of see how they overlap. Which is really um, interesting. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, the thinking is that it's a different way of navigating through the book. You can, you know, the, the book is laid out continent by continent, country by country, but at the same time there are thematic strands that run through the book that you can, that you can follow. Um, and um, I think in, in that instance, there are, there, are, there are clear differences between something like Cholismo, which is almost like a, a way of life, you know, and, and it, it is a very specific term to describe Diego Simeone's coaching style um, and, and particularly the way that it has been put across at Atletico Madrid and um, has enabled them to punch above their weight in such a remarkable way for such a, you know, such a long period of time. No, I mean, it's been like six, six years now. Yeah, and they're still going. Yeah. Um, and, and then you get terms like catenaccio, and catenaccio is a fascinating term because originally it described a tactical concept, the move of moving a defender back behind the line of defense in the sweeper position, the, the libero role. Yeah. Um, and in time, catenaccio came to stand for the kind of cynicism that the teams that specialized in that system particularly the, the great Inter Milan and, and AC Milan teams of the 1960s, that they became sort of prone to. Um, and then part of the bus, as you say, which, which tends to be used quite negatively. I, I think a key difference here is time. Um, I think when you look at the Estudiantes team of the mid-1960s, who were the, the first real exponents of anti-football, you look back at at the distance that we we now are from that period in yeah, 2018, 50 years, 50 yeah, years ago. Yeah. And, I mean, some of the stuff that they did oh, was yeah. absolutely appalling. There were stories about, you know, players carrying pins onto the pitch to stab their opponents. Um, they would research the personal lives of the players they were coming up against so that during the game they could... Just drop all these little yeah, which you really had to do in the sixties. It wasn't like Google; yeah, exactly. you could just like yeah, you really had to you put know, the like hours check in. out their Wikipedia. And <laughs> they were also an extremely dirty team. Um, yeah. I mean, two they were very like arrested at like uh, when they played. AC. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. two notorious intercontinental cup matches in the late sixties against Manchester United and AC Milan, absolutely brutal contests. And at the time, the contemporary reports were, uh, you know expressed the complete shock at these sorts of tactics and how completely unacceptable it was but 50 years later you look back and you can you can look back almost with a degree of fondness because yeah. it's so much time has elapsed and it's almost like it's almost like crimes the way that crimes can yeah. be glamorized but you still hear you know you hear people old timers right now like being like oh yeah i remember back in the day when you used to like be able to elbow some guy in the face yeah exactly and it's yeah. uh, part of it is is nostalgia um and i think you you put enough distance between things that were once found unpalatable 
and they can be repackaged the no. same way that you know a brutal murder might one day be glamorized might be turned into a, a book and a film and, and all sorts whereas at the time it would have been completely shocking yeah. in the same way like brutal football whereas at the time will have will have seemed appalling with enough space in between people start to think of it almost as like a kind of like you know i think because there was almost a cartoonish element to the violence of those estudiantes teams that now stands stands out and i'm sure that when we come to look at you know jose Mourinho's park the bus tactics which were no nowhere near as cynical or as violent as that estudiantes yeah. team it will be seen with a lot more affection than currently um, purely because of that that factor because of because of how time changes perceptions of things yeah uh, i want to uh, jump into one thing before we get to a couple like you know favorite uh words and terms and that uh something that's you know really interesting is obviously you had you know all of these european countries colonize you know africa north america south america you have english and you know in england is different than obviously american mm -hmm. and australian english and uh you know you have france and uh, french different in africa and mm -hmm. spain south america likewise so I'm curious, how did you see it different between those languages in their, um, for lack of a better word, host country mm. versus the uh, colonized country, for uh, lack of a better word, and then compare, like, maybe was English in the United States and England vastly different compared to... Uh, you know, Spain and Mexico were like, with the Spain and Mexican, is it that different versus the UK and the American or if you know what I'm trying yeah, to say? I mean, yeah, I mean, like, no, you, you get, you know, you get, um, you get differences. I mean, I, I, I find the, the language of American soccer like fascinating. Um, and I'm sure you'll have views on this as well. I mean, this, this book was written for a British audience, so I've written about the language of American soccer from that perspective and the knee-jerk reaction of the average British football mm. fan to a bit of American soccer commentary will be to recoil. Yeah, like, I think oh, that you know, the term you have is uh, dislocating. I have some, mm. yeah, dis yeah, yeah. And it's because um, there is such a thing as an American soccer lexicon. No. Um, and it is, it's different to Britain's football lexicon yeah. because it's followed its own evolutionary path the same way that every country's um, football lexicon has. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think an issue here is that if you, were to, if you were to listen to what any other football language sounds like in English, you'd think it sounded really weird. Um, take a random example from France if a guy volleys the ball with his heel it's known in French as an aile de pigeon a pigeon's wing yeah. um, now if you were to take that and just present it to a British football fan like oh you see that great pigeon's wing oh that was fantastic yeah. they'd be like well what the heck's that like that's that's not how we talk about football yeah. um, and and yet there's, there's nothing in America's football lexicon that is any more outlandish or any more weird than anything you find in, in France or Spain but or is it as drastic, India or wherever. The dif is, uh, is the difference as drastic between Spain and Mexico or Spain and uh, Peru as, or Argentina as it is between uh, England and the US. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to comment on that as a non-Spanish speaker, but one thing I would say is that something that, that the United States has had to contend with that I don't think you get in um, Hispanic American countries, South America and Central America, is this, and again, I'm talking about this from a British perspective, but there is this sense in Britain of America being sort of latecomers to football you know sort of appropriating a sport that isn't theirs and doing it in a very clumsy way whereas I think if you're a Spanish person looking at Argentina or Uruguay say there will be a respect for their football cultures because um, 
because there's so there's, there's a greater acceptance of the right of countries like Argentina and Uruguay to a football culture of their own. You know, they were the first two great international yeah. football teams, for example. Um, you know, and. I think it's just because we call it soccer. I, th- I mean, yeah, I think that's I mean, where it all stems from. that's like from. a massive thing. But I mean, like, <laughs> soccer's a crazy one as well because it's only been the last few decades that soccer has become this unusable word uh, yeah. in, in, in the UK. And, like, you look at football magazines and football books. Yeah, that was the, the one thing in this book I don't think that I, I really noticed uh, mm. is, is that there wasn't really an in-depth look at yeah. uh, the, the, I mean, the like term in, soccer. In the, in the section on the United States, I found myself using the word soccer because if you write American football that's a separate sport yeah of course you know you can say Italian football French football Spanish football the meaning is clear if you say American football it's confusing and so I I personally don't have a major gripe with the word soccer because soccer was used interchangeably with the word football in the UK for a long, long time. And in mm. recent years, it's come to be seen as the exclusive preserve of the United States and almost like a, as a symbol of the United States' failure to properly understand the sport. But, like, I mean, my dad still says soccer. He's oh, interesting, 68. Really. Yeah. You know, he's lived in the UK his whole life and he will use soccer. And, it, and you know, it's that's just a word that he's grown up using. And mm. I... I'm, I'm always a little bit wary of people who absolutely hate soccer as a word because it has a long history in this country. And you, I mean, I was saying before, in like sort of the 50s and 60s when you had the great footballers of the time, if they were bringing out a book or a, there'd be a magazine article, it would be, you know, Bobby Charlton's soccer skills yeah. or, 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 you know, or whatever. And there was none of this awkwardness about it and, and soccer is a British term yeah. you know anyway it's not like it came from the States I mean yeah. soccer was a shortened form of football association football yeah. so I had this argument with someone one time because mm. I was like people forget also that American football is over 100 it's like 120 years old it was like in the invented in the 1890s mm. or something so it's really yeah. old too so yeah um, but I don't want to make this all about uh, about uh, the lexicon of American uh, soccer or football. But um, I want to get to some of the, the funny, interesting, uh-huh. my favorite uh, okay. terms. Uh, do you have a couple? I want to start with you. Uh, okay, I've, I've, I've had a think. Yeah. Um, uh, some, some, I mean, this, my sort of favorites change quite a lot. But um, I've sort of thought of like a little top three. Um, there's a Cantonese term, carpwa which literally translates as arranging flowers and it's used to describe a step over. Freaking beautiful. And I yeah. really like that because I think it just captures the, the sort of essential decorativeness of the step over. And there's also there's something a bit disdainful. If you describe a step over as arranging flowers, what you're saying is stop I'll fanning show. around and like get the crossing kind yeah. of thing. Um, there's a term from the Netherlands that... Uh, <laughs> that, that continues to tickle me. Um, if the ball is bouncing around inside the penalty area and the defending team are tripping over their own feet trying to clear it and there's total panic, you might hear a Dutch commentator say, Vroeven en kinderen eerst, which means women and children first. Obviously, that's yeah. an expression that we have in English, but in, in, in Dutch football, it's, it's used ironically in those terms, yeah. you know, to sort of uh, describe... It really captures the mood. Total chaos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that one. And then probably my favorite term in the whole book is a Finnish term. Um, and to, uh, to, to, to describe it, um, when a, a bear hibernates... Yeah, I had this one too, yeah. Yeah. When a bear hibernates, uh, a mass of matter forms in its colon, and it's a mixture of feces and intestinal cells and hair. And while the bear is asleep in its den, this lump of poop, basically poop, yeah. just <laughs> grows it, yeah. in its bum. And then when it emerges from its den in the spring... It shakes this, this thing out. It lands on the floor. And um, if you are strolling through the woods in Finland, this is the sort of thing that you might encounter. There's lots of bears in Finland. Yeah. Anyway, the Finnish name for, for this is Pikatapi, 
which yeah. means happy you fecal, said it, not me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in Finnish uh, football, a pikatapi is a holding midfielder. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that amused the hell out of me and when I encapsulated. Came that. Yeah, because it's the, the plug. Yeah, it's the, the, people it's the guy not, yeah. who plugs the hole in front of the back four <laughs> and if you have the misfortune to play in that position in Finland you're likened to a lump of poo that's fallen out of a bear's bum that that was my favorite as well for like most bizarre weirdest weirdest one I'm gonna go through a couple of mine as well um and this part part of them mo- most of them are funny or just because of interesting uh origins uh the Anglican in mm. uh check and by the way i'm gonna butcher all these um because unlike you I haven't i know I'm, heard I, them. I'm, I'm sure i'm butchering um, them as well but the anglican um in the czech republic is used when the ball goes in off the post in honor of jeff hurst mm. in the 1966 world cup final so it's pretty incredible that they have a entire term based on a moment in uh british football history so uh there's and that there's, there's a similar term in german as well uh wembley tour wembley yeah. goal yeah. And that describes the exact same. I mean, you can understand why Although the Germans like might goal. cling to it. Yeah, yeah so a Wembley, a Wembley tour is basically a phantom goal yeah. um, because of you know, Jeff Hurst's famous third goal. Um, but yeah, less surprising that Germany should yeah. have clung to that than the of Czechs. Of course, yeah. That's so random. Um, and then uh, uh, Bundesligard, uh, it means mullet in Denmark. And it's what they use. They call a mullet for based on the... German Bundesliga, which is just incredible. A hairstyle based on yeah, the German... Yeah, it's like Bundesliga hair is yeah, essentially Bundesliga what it is, means. Yeah. And I think it's just, it just, it's just a reflection of the fact that in the 1980s, <laughs> every single German footballer had a horrendous mullet, often paired with a dye job. Um, just brilliant. And lives on in, in Denmark. Oh, just incredible. Um, this one just close to home. Uh, Gordie Howe hat trick, um, which uh, I, I wish a, a British commentator used. When you score a goal, get an assist, and have a fight in the same game, because uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, in hockey they do that quite a bit. Uh, mm. I mean, that's in the that's in the Canada section in the yeah. book, and I have not actually found an example of an actual footballer who has managed to pull off a Gordie Howe hat trick. But then, oh, uh, I'm sure it's happened. Danny, Danny Dicchio came quite close um, on his Toronto FC debut in that oh, he really? got a goal. He got sent off for some act of violence. Yeah. Didn't get an assist though, I don't think. Well, I wouldn't have got, got like a practice, like a you know, in football, people don't actually fight like they do in a, you yeah. know, in like in hockey. Um, I wouldn't expect that, but even a little foot like shoving, you know, would would make a a, a, a Gordy Howe uh, hat trick. And then the the last one, just because I'm a, a little kid at heart, um, the arts card, uh, you know, red card in Germany, take it from your ass. You yeah, know, comes out the back your, pocket. Yeah, yeah, it's simple, but. But just just a little funny, yeah, you know, yeah. immature. <laughs> um, you in the book you tell a number of beautiful old uh, stories that many of which I didn't know before. Is there anyone that you learned or uh, heard about um, in someone in some country's history that you were blown away by or that you were fascinated by? I mean, yeah, I think as I said earlier, um, one of the th- one of the things I really enjoyed researching the book was when you were able to pinpoint the exact moment when a term entered um, a, a country's football language. And there was uh, a term that we use in English, fox in the box, for a, yeah. you know, a sort of predatory striker. And that interested me because I, it sounded very similar to uh, a French expression, renard des surfaces, which basically means fox of the boxes. It's essentially the same thing. And I wanted to see whether there was any kind of link between the two of them. And it turns out that um, Fox in the Box entered Britain's football lexicon in the summer of 2001. Arsenal lost the FA Cup final against Liverpool at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Uh, They took the lead. Arsenal dominated the game, couldn't kill Liverpool off. Liverpool scored twice at the end through Michael Owen, went home with the cup. Thierry Henry was being interviewed in the mix zone by some French journalists, and he was complaining that Arsenal didn't have a player like Owen, someone who, who he referred to as a renard des surfaces, a fox of the boxes, um, and called on Arsene Wenger to buy a player like that, to play alongside him, so that they'd have that element in their team. Um, the British press latched on to this um, remark. Renard des Surfaces became 
fox in the box. Later that summer, Arsenal signed Francis Jeffers from Everton. And when he was presented to the media, Arsene Wenger said, let's hope that he will prove to be the fox in the box that everyone's been talking about. Um, and with that, fox in the box became part of the lexicon and has been used ever since and is now used very commonly yeah. and, and understood very, very widely. But prior to that afternoon at the Millennium Stadium... It wasn't a term that was that had been used, and I that was that was a great discovery. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it, it might even outlive you know Thierry Henry's name. They might be using it in a hundred years, and yeah, people will have forgotten about him, and he'll be in you know the you know the next book a hundred years from now. <laughs> yeah. and it, um, it's it's amazing, but it's a great story of how a, a word or a phrase comes into you know footballing language. Mm. Uh, it's a be- beautiful example. Uh, for people going to Russia, like myself, this for the World Cup, what's a term that we might be hearing in, in Russian football? Or Okay, there's, there's one term which comes from Russian folklore, uh, balabol, meaning chatterbox. And a balabol in Russian folklore was someone who's talked too much. So you might hear a Russian football fan complain about a, a garrulous TV commentator they don't like or a coach who's always shooting his mouth off. That's the word they might use. Um, another one, one of my favorite Russian terms is derevo, which means tree. And a derevo is uh, a technically inadequate, usually quite immobile footballer who sort of stands around almost as if he's taken root. And the Berezutsky twins, uh, who are still going, CSK Moscow, somewhat incredibly, were both saddled with this nickname or this name early in their career so if you know if if, if there's a guy on your team who just sort of stands around doing nothing they're always can't control the (laughs) ball then that's that's what you'd call him in russia oh brilliant um well uh you know parting shots do you have any last words for the audience anything you'd like to promote um you know obviously you people can go buy the book um do you speak football we only scratched the surface of all of the the fantastic terms and stories uh in this interview but is there anything else you'd like to mention? Um, yeah, if, if you're interested in football and if you're interested in language, um, and particularly if you're interested in both, I'd oh. recommend buying the book. Uh, hopefully, Or just good do, stories. Like, honestly, that was stories. my favorite bit about because I didn't even see that Yeah, that yeah, there's, a, yeah. there's lots of little anecdotes and little historical stories. Yeah. Um, one thing I would add is that there is a hashtag, which is hashtag do you speak football? And I'm going to use that hashtag to share photos and video content related to the book because one of the things I read a lot of football books and something I really enjoy doing when you're reading a football book is when someone's describing a goal you've not seen or an incident in a match is seeing if, seeing if I can find it on YouTube and yeah, having course, a watch yeah. of it so I'm going to prepare a bunch of content so that if you come across something in the book and it piques your interest if you have a look at the hashtag then hopefully you'll find footage of it or oh, a photo of it or fantastic. something. Fantastic. Well, you keep it going, you know, yeah, kind of like... Yeah, and sort of get a, you know, get a conversation yeah, going, as, the, they, as they say, on social yeah, media. Exactly, you know, get the people to, you know, follow up with that. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, I'll use those, and thank you so much for joining uh, us on this show. Thanks for having me.